Uh, just briefly, um, Dr. Shank preached at the Highland Church in Memphis. I know that for sure. And uh, spent some time out in Oklahoma at Oklahoma Christian as chairman of the Bible Department. Uh, several years there. And then finally ended up at Ohio Valley University as the president uh, a couple years ago, I believe. That's when he uh, began his work there. The main thing I want to say about Dr. Shank is that uh, Tony Rush and Dennis Rush know him, and they said he's all right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so let's, uh, let's welcome Dr. Shank. Turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Chapter 2, we'll be looking at Colossians chapter 2. Well, congratulations to Fenway Park in Boston, Massachusetts, Universal Studios in Los Angeles, California, the Girl Scouts of America, Oreo Cookies, and the Sunshine Church Christ. You're all 100 years old this year. I certainly hope we're having Oreo cookies during the potluck, not 100-year-old ones. And on behalf of those from Ohio Valley University that are here today, let me add our word of congratulations. It's an honor to be with you, and we give praise to God for the way in which you have maintained the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace for a century and served our Lord. And uh, given the large number of children here today, uh, for which I'm very grateful, I think that you'll be around another century or so. And so I pr appreciate uh, your concern for children, and especially noting in the bulletin your concern for the vulnerable children of the world. And if we can partner with you in any way, let me know. I've known the Russias for years. Uh, they were in Somerset, Pennsylvania when I was there uh, one summer, and then he was an elder uh, where I preached in Memphis, and so I uh, know, know them for a long time, and they're good people, too. <laughs> Let me say a word about uh, Ohio Valley University. We're about two hours and 15 minutes uh, uh, from here, just across the Ohio River from Belpre, Ohio. We are a Church of Christ school. We love our relationship with Churches of Christ, trying to serve the 2,246 congregations in the 16 states that surround our school. We're the only Church of Christ school in those 16 states from Maine down to Kentucky and Indiana over to uh, New Jersey. And uh, we're trying to be simply a Church of Christ school and serve, serve the congregations in those, in those areas. Uh, just to give you a brief update, uh, two weeks ago, the U.S. News and World Report released their annual rankings of the 4,000 colleges and universities in the United States of America. They rank them according to tiers, the bottom tiers three, second tiers number two, and then the top tier, the best schools, are number one. And for the fourth year in a row, U.S. News & World Report has ranked Ohio Valley University a tier one institution. Right. And so we're grateful for that. Yes, thank you. Uh, they put schools in categories, in our category, which is Southern Baccalaureate schools, there are 120 universities, and they rank as number 35 of, of those universities. Uh, in August, the Washington Monthly 
uh, came out with their rankings of American colleges and universities. They only rank schools like ours. Baccalaureate colleges rank us number 41 nationwide in their ranking. They have several different categories, and one of their categories is how well does the school involve its students and its faculty and staff in service to the community? It's one of their rankings. And Washington Monthly said Ohio Valley University is the number one school in the nation in doing that. And we're proud of that because it's so biblical uh, to be of service. So it's good to be with you today. Come and see us. Uh, send us your students. Uh, partner with us. We want to be your university. Uh, you own us. And so let us know how we can help you. Uh, one of the uh, books that came out of the Jewish Holocaust was a, a short little volume called Night. It was the autobiographical work of Eli Vassell, a Jewish, Orthodox Jewish man whose family was taken to the Auschwitz concentration camp during the war. And there's one scene in the book where Vassell reports that all the prisoners of the camp were assembled in the large courtyard there to witness the lynching of a child. And as preparations were being made on the scaffolding to hang this boy, all the prisoners were gathered, and Vassell says, said that a voice rang out in the crowd, a male voice, a Jewish voice. And the voice said, where is God? And they kicked out the stool. The boy hung by the rope. And one by one, the Nazis paraded the prisoners in front of the dying child. And Vassell said that when he reached the boy, the same voice called out and said, Where is God now? Not a single one of us were imprisoned at Auschwitz. But we, we all ask the same questions. There's a disaster, a diagnosis, a divorce, a storm, a shooting, a sickness. And we cry out, where's God? Where is God now? About 2,000 years ago, there was, was a city called Colossae in western Turkey. And this group of people was, were, in effect, they were asking the same questions. Where's God? Where's God now? And there's a book in the New Testament written to the people who lived in that city. It's called Colossians, and it was written by the Apostle Paul. And as they asked these questions, they were asking, looking for answers in various places. And Paul identifies where it was that they were looking for answers. They were looking to principalities and authorities. They were looking to the philosophy. They were looking to human traditions and the elemental spirits of the universe. And you may say, what in the world are those? What kind of authority is that? And if you read the scholars, they will say, well, uh, it's a form, an early form of Gnosticism, or it's Jewish syncretism, or it's folk religion, or it's all of the above, or it's none of the above, or some of the above. And the bottom line is, we don't know. But they were asking the questions to these sources of authority. 
And Paul begins answering those questions by four times saying, let no one, let no one. He says it in chapter 2, if you're following along in verse 4, he says, let no one delude you with beguiling speech. And then he comes back to it in verse 8. He says, let no one make prey of you by philosophy and empty deceits. And then he comes back to it again in verse 16, and he says of chapter 2, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. And then a fourth time he says at verse 18, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on self-abasement and worship of angels. And we, we wonder about this advice. It almost seems to be too simplistic. Paul, if they and if, if I don't listen to every voice out there, then who do I listen to? If I, don't, if I don't fall prey to the latest demagogue with his system of right and wrong, if, if I don't follow the latest craze that's gone viral on the Internet, then where do I look for answers to questions? It's not enough to say what not to look for. Well, he gives us the, an answer. It's in verse 9 of chapter 2, and it's very clear. He's been talking in this book about Christ and often refers to Christ with the pronoun. And so he says, in Christ, verse 9, for in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. It's bold, stark language. And he's saying that God lives in Christ, that God in Christ has come to the earth, that God in Christ lives in the neighborhood. And we find this kind of teaching all through this little book, written to these people answering the fundamental questions of life. And so he says it, for example, in chapter 1, verse 19, almost word for word, he says, For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then chapter 2, verse 9, For in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And then again in chapter 3, verse 11, he says, But Christ is all and in all. Well, the doctrine here is the doctrine of the incarnation. The God has taken on bodily form. It's the doctrine we sometimes call theophany. The God has made an appearance on the earth. It's the doctrine we sometimes call epiphany, that God has manifest, God has shown himself to us. And we wonder, how does that work? How does that happen? One of the most famous scientists of the first part of the 20th century was Sir William Lawrence Bragg. He was British. Won the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1915. And then in 1951, he was appointed head of the Royal Institute in London, which meant that he had to leave his rural home in Cambridge, where he had a wonderful garden, and go live in an apartment in the city of London. And after living there for a little while, Sir William Lawrence Bragg began to really miss his garden, so he came up with a plan. This famous scientist put on bib overalls, put a rake and a hoe over his shoulder, and went to the most exclusive neighborhood, South Kensington, and walked up and down the street looking for a garden that he thought he could do something with. 
And he finally found one, and he went to the door and rang the bell. So there's Sir William Lawrence Bragg, most famous scientist in the world, standing on the doorstep, dressed as a gardener. And the woman came to the door, a very wealthy, wealthy woman, and he said, I am Willie, and I'm a gardener. I have an afternoon free every week. Can I be hired to tend your garden? She looked at her garden, looked at him, thought it's worth a try. And so Sir William Lawrence Bragg, Willie, started working in her garden. And he turned it into a showcase. So much so that she decided to have all of her socialite friends over for a tea to show off her garden on the afternoon he was working. And one of the ladies who was at the tea was, was sipping her brew, looking out the window, and she just happened to know Sir William Lawrence Bragg. And she turned to her hostess and said, My dear, what is Sir William Lawrence Bragg doing in your garden? For in him, all the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. God is in your garden. God has come dressed in bib overalls. God shops where you shop. And yet, as we read through Colossians, the point of Colossians is not to explain how it is that God does this, but rather the point of Colossians is to explain why it is that God does this. What are the implications of it? The number of topics covered in Colossians is remarkable. It makes it a little hard to read because it reads a little bit like a dictionary. So it talks about faith, hope, love, joy, peace, suffering, sin, death. It talks about relationships, ethics, worldviews, idolatry. All those are discussed in the book. And the answer to every question that we have, Paul says, is Jesus. Listen to what he says. Remarkable language. Turn back to chapter 1, verse 15. And this little text is filled with pronouns, but I'm going to replace the pronoun with the word Christ, which is who the pronoun refers to. And listen, listen to what he says about Christ. Chapter 1, verse 15. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or authorities, all things were created through Christ and for Christ. Christ is before all things, and in Christ all things hold together. Christ is the head of the body, the church. Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything Christ might be preeminent, for in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So the answer to every question, Paul says, is Christ. Creation? Jesus was there. Politics, Jesus is in charge. Suffering, no one suffered more. Sin, Jesus conquered it at the cross. Philosophy, Jesus showed a superior way. Injustice, Jesus makes it right. And just in case we miss the point, Paul will use the word all, A-L-L, 20 times, always referring to Jesus, and he uses superlatives in the book, all and every, fully, whole, mostly to refer to Jesus. What is he saying? Every question that we ask has Jesus as the answer. That's what it means when he says the whole fullness of deity dwells in Christ. There is no other answer. There's no corporation. There's no army. There's no think tank. There's no university above Jesus. There's no president. There's no Congress. There's no Supreme Court above Jesus. There's no government agency. There's no philosophy. There's no advertising firm. There's no movie company above Jesus. There's no songwriter. There's no megachurch. There's no dictator above Jesus. God in Jesus always works. God in Jesus can't be broken. God in Jesus applies to every situation. God in Jesus covers everything in life. 
But, but Colossians 2.9 leads to Colossians 2.10. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have come to fullness of life in Christ. And so Colossians 2.9 is a two-part equation. God is in Christ. But Colossians 2.10 adds us to it. God is in Christ, and then Christ is in us. Paul's saying the deeper you probe this equation, God in Christ, Christ in us, the more it works. The deeper you probe it, the clearer it becomes. The deeper you probe it, the more it satisfies. The deeper you probe it, the more adequately it answers our questions. The deeper you probe it, the better it responds. The deeper you probe it, the more comprehensive it becomes. There's an old story out of the Civil War about an old man sitting on a park bench near the White House in the Capitol crying. And a little boy came up and said, Mr. Why are you crying? The old man, for some reason, told the little boy a story. My son was in the battle. He got afraid. He ran. He was caught, tried for treason. They're going to hang him. And I came to Washington to the White House to talk to the president because I know if I could talk to the president, he would pardon my son. But I got to the White House, the guards wouldn't let me in. The little boy said, follow me. And so the little boy and the old man walked down the street to the White House, and the little boy waved at the guards and said, the man's with me. And they let him pass. And they went into the White House, passed the guard at the cabinet room, And the little boy crawled up on the lap of the president. He said, Daddy, you need to listen to this man's story. The man told his story, and President Abraham Lincoln pardoned his son. For in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness of life in him. Because of Christ. We can get into the mansion because of Christ, we have access to the cabinet room. Because of Christ, we get pardoned. Because of Christ, we have fullness of life. Remember taking tests back in school? Sometimes they were true-false tests or uh, multiple choice or some of us multiple guess. And, And then there were essay questions. And then there were those short answer tests. I suggest to you that Colossians is like a short answer test, and it gives us the answers. And so here are the questions. What does God look like? Colossians says, the answer is Jesus. What do I do with my sin? The answer is Jesus. How do I live my life? The answer is Jesus. How do I explain suffering? The answer is Jesus. Where do I find fulfillment? The answer is Jesus. Where do I learn my purpose in life? The answer is Jesus. What philosophy do I follow? The answer is Jesus. Who can help me decide between right and wrong? The answer is Jesus. When the road divides in the woods, which road do I take? The answer is Jesus. 
Who can teach me how to have good relationships? The answer is Jesus. How can I face legalism? The answer is Jesus. What should be my political point of view? The answer is Jesus. What's the answer to poverty? The answer is Jesus. How do I deal with injustice? The answer is Jesus. How do I fix my marriage? The answer is Jesus. Who do I depend upon when I'm I'm sick? The answer is Jesus. Who knows what happens when I die? The answer is Jesus. Where is God now? The answer is Jesus. Vladimir Gostanovich frightened me. I was in Kiev, Ukraine, just as the Iron Curtain was collapsing. Several of us were preaching at a place called the Officers Club near the capital of the country of Ukraine. And after preaching, several people had come forward and we baptized them into a little collapsible baptistry that we had brought from Memphis. And then afterwards... One of the women, an adult woman that I had baptized, introduced me to her father, Vladimir Kostanovich. We'd gone out in the hallway. There weren't many lights. It was dark. And there was Vladimir Kostanovich in full communist army uniform, hat, medals, ribbons, buttoned up, stripes. He never blinked. He had a stern look in his face an angry countenance. And he stared at me and never said a word. Scared me to death. I later learned from his daughter that when Vladimir Kostanovich was a teenager, the communist had come to their apartment, to their flat, and taken his father away. And they'd never heard from him since. The word on the street, the word in the neighborhood was that his father was a traitor and he'd been shot. And for the next 60 years, Vladimir Kostanovich lived in constant fear. Fear that people would find out his father was a traitor. Fear that people would find out that his father had been shot. Fear that people would think he was a traitor. Fear that he would be shot. Fear that he'd be looking at a statue of Lenin and have a frown on his face. And people think that he wasn't a good communist. He lived his whole life in fear. And then three things happened. The Iron Curtain came tumbling down. He got a letter in the mail from the Communist Party admitting that 60 years before they had shot his father. And then he came and heard me preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and saw his daughter baptized. And I didn't know what he would do. I didn't know if he was KGB. I didn't know if he would... Uh, do some harm to me. His grandboys, grandchildren would come up and hug me on the legs. I'd baptize his daughter. He scared me to death. But after we got back to the United States, his daughter wrote and said that during the preaching that evening, he had decided that Jesus Christ was the answer to all the questions he had. And the soldier of the Soviet Union, became a soldier of Jesus Christ and was baptized into Christ. Well, the Bible has its own version of the Eli Vassell story. It's not about a boy, it's about a son. Not about a man, but about a mother. Not about a noose, but about a cross. It takes place early on a Sunday morning when Mary goes out with a question on her mind, where is God now? 
and the image of Jesus hanging on the cross lingers in the air. And the story then is told in one of our songs. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses, and the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. And he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own, and the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness of life in him. The text goes on here in Colossians 2 to talk about the bridge between the world of darkness, the world of hostility, the world of estrangement, the world where there are no answers to questions, and the life in Christ. And the bridge is baptism, he says. And if today's the day you'd like to cross that bridge and leave the world of darkness and come into the world of life, world of life this would be a great day to do that. Or if there's some issue that you're facing, some question that you just don't see how Jesus could possibly be the answer, these good people, I'm sure, will surround you, lift you up in God to prayer so that that answer is forthcoming. If there's any way that you can be served or helped today, would you come to the front as we stand and as we sing?